You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Uh, Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Christian Miller, who is a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University, also the director of the Honesty Project there, former director of the Character Project there, and the author of two books, one for each project, I suppose. The most recent book is called Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. And the book right before that was called The The Character Gap, How Good Are We? And in The Character Gap, of course, you have a chapter on the virtue of honesty and Perhaps you will have a book on each of the the different virtues in your taxonomy. But I thought I would just kind of start off by, we'll talk about character, of course. But when I talk to young people today, you know, I have young relatives, I have a lot of students and stuff. The idea of like who you want to be is one that kind of catches them off guard a little bit, like catches people by surprise, right? Oftentimes the question, what do you want? That's one that they're pretty well versed in, they can answer relatively quickly. If you say like, well, what kind of life do you want to lead? Okay, they have to think about that a little bit more. But the whole idea of who you want to be, it seems a bit foreign. And I don't think it would have been a foreign question for most educated people a while back. And so this question of character, you know, we'll talk about what makes for maybe good or bad character, virtuous and non-virtuous character. But I guess the question I would have is, does it make sense to talk about more or less character? So in the definition of character, it seems like it's a uniquely human thing in a way, right? We don't talk about the character of of animals. And so does it make sense to talk about more or less character before we even start talking about what type of character uh, people have? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it does make sense. So character is wrapped up with some other notions, which would explain why it's maybe uniquely human. It's wrapped up with questions of agency, and moral responsibility, and free will, and choice. And so if you are a uh, have a good character, the thought is that's something that you're responsible for, you're held accountable for, you're praiseworthy for. If you have a bad character, you're blameworthy for that. And it's not something that was just programmed into you or implanted into you. you. You had an active role to play in cultivating that kind of character, either for good or for bad. And then we, we talk about all these other notions like free will, responsibility, praise and blame. Well, we don't normally carry those over to animals. We don't normally think that a dog or a snake has the ability to make moral choices right from wrong and is praiseworthy or blameworthy for those choices. So I, I think you're right to say it's it's uniquely human. If you want to go you know, beyond the human, we could maybe talk about the possibility of AI, if you want the possibility of aliens, possibility of divine beings, we could get go in that direction. But as far as like on this planet right now, we're the only ones who have character. But I mean, social scientists and behavioral scientists, I mean, we observe behavior and then we try to predict behavior. And, and I guess there's a behavioralist model out there, which is organisms respond to the environment. And then you try to reverse engineer kind of their response function. So, I mean, is character just the kind of response function? of the organism, right? If it is it just the, um, the way in which output in the form of behavior responds to input in the form of stimulus. And once we identify some kind of stable function, we say, okay, there we go. That's the character of the, uh, of the organism. All right. 
I would not want to put it that way myself. That kind of picture you're talking about, a kind of behaviorist model, was popular in psychology way back when, in the maybe 1950s, 1960s. Uh, it's kind of passed by, I think, for good reason. It's never been very popular in contemporary philosophy. Uh, I think we have a need a more rich and nuanced picture of what's going on. So clearly the environment matters. How I behave is in response to what I perceive going on in my environments. If I'm walking in the forest and I see a snake, that's going to make a big difference to what I do next, as opposed to not seeing a snake. However, it's not see a snake, therefore run away. It's see a snake, have that be processed by my internal psychology, my cognitive side of my psychology, my beliefs. Okay, I think that I believe that's a snake. I believe it can hurt me. I believe the best thing to do is to run away. But the motivational and affective and emotional side to my psychology. Okay, I'm feeling some fear. I want to preserve my life. I don't want to get bitten. I don't want to have to go to the hospital. I don't want to die. Um, and those two, the cognitive and the affective components are going to inter interact with each other and be interrelated to each other. And then ultimately they will give rise to outward behavior. Now, that's a very specific instance. The more general idea of character is this. Character traits are internal psychological dispositions which stand between situations and behavior. And they have a cognitive side to them, like we just said, a thought component to them. And they have a motivational side to them, uh, which, which gives rise to behavior. So what your, whether your character is good or not is going to be a function of what those two parts mm -hmm. look like. Is the cognitive side good? Is the behavioral, I mean, the motivational side good? And do they jointly give rise to good behavior? So that's the more kind of, I think, enriched, plausible, psychological picture than the behaviorist one. Right. I mean, you described, say, somebody who is consistently honest, right? So they behave in a way that is reliably honest, right? And you can more or less predict how they're going to behave in this situation because their characteristics are, are stable. But if it's something that's, they don't think about it, it's completely automated. They never thought about it, right? It's just a disposition that is, say, I don't know, genetic, or, you know, they have a form of autism that makes it incapable of them lying. We wouldn't call that a virtuous character, right? That's, that's right. So there are different ways to tell that story. You're right. So one could be a genetic acquisition. One could be something like a, a mental disability. These alternative pictures, Aristotle even had a what he called natural virtue. So he was willing to talk about virtue in a natural sense as in terms of what you kind of were born with. All the way back then, Aristotle was thinking those categories. However, in none of those cases would we want to say that this is moral character, precisely because, as you said, it's just instinctual or automatic or not subject to our voluntary control. When we're talking about moral character, it's a different matter. I have to play some kind of conscious role in acquiring and, and making decisions and, and choosing between alternatives and this kind of thing. And so that's the distinction for Aristotle between natural virtue and moral virtue comes in there. You referenced Aristotle, and it seems like the Aristotelian approach to ethics has experienced a bit of a resurgence in the last 50 years. And it's kind of funny because it, it kind of corresponds to the, the time frame in which it's an anecdotal description of a lower concern, lesser concern among educated people with things like character, at least, you know, some people would argue. But what did it replace? I mean, I remember when I was in college, right? I mean, John Rawls is pretty much was what we learned in variations and critiques of John Rawls. And I think we're kind of still living in that world, right? Where when you ask people, right, what it means to be 
virtuous, I think they kind of think, well, okay, I'm, here are all things that like, I'm not going to do. And then within that zone, that permissible region, you know, I can, I can just, you know, my job is to figure out what I really want. Right. <laughs> you know, my right, job right, is to, right, is to right. figure out like, do, do maybe, you know, I'll try this out. Oh, it doesn't resonate. Maybe I'll, I'll try this other thing. And, and so the goal is to find out who you are and what makes you happy rather than to think about becoming a quote, quote, better person. In fact, I think if you argued, told someone, Hey, you should be a better person. They, they might kind of look at you funny or, or bristle, right? I mean, so what accounts for this kind of resurgence in, in the world of philosophy? And is it just sort of a leading indicator of where the popular conception is going to go? Let's take the two two issues here. One is what's going on in contemporary ethics and in, in recent trends. And then I'd like to touch on that the point about happiness too. So here's a really short kind of too superficial but somewhat helpful overview of the history of 20th century ethics. First half of the 20th century, there were two leading views out there. One was utilitarianism. According to utilitarianism, we have a moral obligation to maximize the good in the world, maximize utility in the world. They would often understand that in terms of happiness, maximize happiness in the world. Bentham and Mill were the kind of leaders of this movement in the previous century, and it gained a lot of prominence in the 20th century. Side by side with that was a kind of more Kantian approach, going back to the philosopher Immanuel Kant, which emphasized rules like treat others always as ends, never merely as means, treat others with respect and dignity, never instrumentalizing them. These kind of absolute rules, which have a lot of common sense to them and would not permit some of the actions that utilitarianism would permit. So those two views you know, again, this is too too much of a caricature, but there's some truth to it, were the leaders in the 20th century for quite a while, but then there became increasing dissatisfaction with both of them. People, Some people were saying, is there something else out there? These views have serious problems. And there was no one person who really turned the tide, but a, a series of individuals like Elizabeth Anscombe, Alistair McIntyre, Philippa Foote, Martha Nussbaum, uh, uh, Rosalind Hursthouse, who said, well, we don't have to start fresh or from scratch, inventing a whole new ethical approach. We can actually go back to ancient Greece and the views that Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates were developing all the way in the, in the beginnings of Western philosophy. And let's see if we can update them. I mean, we can't, of course, accept some of the things they said. Aristotle's views on slaves, Aristotle's views on women, we have to set those aside. But there's kernels of truth, they thought, in what those philosophers were doing. Let's update it, like more sophisticated. Let's answer some objections they couldn't answer. And lo and behold, what happened is that not that virtue ethics won, but it established itself as a serious third alternative to those other two. And that the core idea of this approach is not to think about what Mac promotes the best consequences, not to think in the first instance about what the right rule is, but to think about how can I become a virtuous person? What a virtuous person do in the circumstances? And what does a particular virtue direct me to do in a given situation. So that's uh, a little bit of where things are now. It's one of the big three. It's established itself as one of the big three. On the point about happiness, though, interestingly, Aristotle would have reacted quite the opposite to what you said, because for Aristotle, what is happiness? He calls it eudaimonia in the Greek. It's also translated flourishing. Well, for him, it's not entirely, but primarily virtue. The happy life is the life of virtue. To be, a, to be happy, to flourish as a human being is to be a good person. 
And so he thought that those were incredibly intertwined and not something that you would have a hard time in linking or should have a hard time linking up. Yeah, I know when you talk about like why, you know, you're trying to make the case, I think you describe a story where your, your child asked you, why be virtuous, right? You know, why do this, right? And I think the promise of happiness is something that, it's something of an article of faith, right? Because at least when you're on that journey towards acquiring virtues, it's not sort of a monotonic relationship, you know, where happiness increases alongside the the path towards virtue, right? I mean, there's some stuff along the way that might lead you to doubt the the end destination. So there's there's an element of faith there, right? That's right. And so there are a couple of elements of faith. One is that there's no linear relationship in terms of getting better. So just cultivating virtue itself is not a simple matter. Every day I'm improving and improving, improving, never having any setbacks. It's going to be a jagged curve, if you want to put it that way, with lots of setbacks. And then there's not going to be a direct correlation to one's happiness either. You could be in a situation where you're trying to get better and you have to suffer a lot as a result because of your circumstances, your environments, your the world you find yourself in. So what are the reasons to become better then? Well, one way we're focusing on here is because it's in your self-interest, because it'll benefit you in the long run, other things being equal or on average. It's not making any promise that you necessarily will benefit, but it's more likely that you will benefit than if you don't become virtuous. It's a claim about averages here. That's not the only reason though to become better. That seems like a bad reason, right? I mean, you know, I mean, it seems to violate condition, right? So a big part of being virtuous is the kind of mens rea piece where your intention has to be non-egotistical yep. to some degree, right? So yep. it seems kind of hypocritical to advocate virtue by discussing the the selfish benefits that will accrue from it. Yep, yep. You're you're quite right to to note that, and I think I will agree with you to to this extent. If it starts self-interest and it can't end self-interested, let's back up one step. You're right. First, let's establish the point that if you're going to be a virtuous person, it's not just enough to act well. We've already touched on this a little bit, but in particular, your motivation has to be virtuous as well as your behavior. What would be an unvirtuous form of motivation? That would be self-interested motivation if you're just doing it to benefit yourself. So that's not if you only stay at the level of self-interested motivation even though your behavior is always admirable you're never going to get to virtue now i still think there's something to this reason though because look the other arguments to give for becoming virtuous are probably not going to appeal to people who are not virtuous already here's though the self-interested argument is one that can appeal to people who are not virtuous, at least to get them to take it seriously and and maybe start down this path. And look, if the upshot of that is they start behaving better and start habituating their character more in the direction of behaving better, that's a win already. But then right. the it's, like getting, people, it's, like, it's like getting people in the church with the free meal. And yeah. then, you know, once, once they're in there, they, they, listen, they listen to what the priest has to say. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. And, and you hope that they see some value, use your analogy, see some value in what's going on in the service for its own sake. And I say, I want to come back to this service, not just for the fee free meal, but because I see that there's something really important here. There's something worth spending my time doing. And then take that back to the character case. And so you hope that immersion in a certain kind of way of life opens one's eyes to the intrinsic value of this life and not just the instrumental value for yourself. 
And then if you come to that point, if you start saying this is worth doing for its own sake, now you're ready to progress further. And there's hope that you can become deeply virtuous. You know, as an economist, I'm always interested in the idea of trade-offs. So the question that I think an economist would ask is, what are you losing when you become you know, more virtuous? Is there a trade-off or is it kind of a win-win? So to an economist, if you're on the frontier, the only way to gain one thing is to give something else up that's also desirable. But if you're beneath the frontier, then you, know, you can kind of get this more or less for free. So does virtue come at the expense of something else? And then when we start looking at the individual virtues and you discuss them, you have a bunch of taxonomies, does the pursuit of one virtue necessarily, at, at least at the limits, come at the expense of other virtues? Mm-hmm. Great, great, great. So two questions, let me take them apart and tackle the first one first. These are great questions. So I think you have to accept that becoming virtuous will be at the expense of something that you might enjoy. Well, that might, there can be multiple things, but the easiest thing I think to, to cite would be uh, moments of short-term pleasure. So it's kind, of, it's kind of like, I think they say, you know, to be courageous is not to act in the absence of, of fear, but to act in spite of fear, right? So in a sense that if, if there's no fear and you just do it, then you're not really, you know, you're not, there's no virtue there, right? That's right, in the courage case, exactly. Let's shift to the honesty case, because I think this can illustrate the point real straightforwardly. You're a student, you're taking a test, you have an opportunity to glance over at the student next to you and see their answers. You know that if you do that, you didn't prepare very well for the test. You know that if you do that, you're probably going to perform better by putting that student's answers down on your test. And in the short run, you'll get a better grade in the class, may improve your GPA, and et cetera, et cetera. But if you're honest, you won't do that. And so you're willing to sacrifice this short-run benefits and the pleasure that might come with it for the sake of something deeper, something more valuable. So you could shift to another domain, the domain of, let's say, Pleasure is associated with food and drink. So to be clear, right, I don't think that we can evaluate somebody's character clearly by just looking at the behavior, right? So if if people are honest all the time, that doesn't mean that they have, you know, the virtue of honesty. It just means that, you know, it may well be that the punishments associated with being dishonest are very severe, that the probability of getting caught is very high. And so we might not ever know what that person's character is unless we sort of stress test them and run them. So in a a well-ordered society like ours, it's kind of like people's character might just be invisible. And I think about like when the Bosnian war happened, right? These people who are law abiding, you know, butchers and bakers and whatever, they, they became these ruthless murderers. And, you know, you might not have ever been able to predict it because they were never in that specific situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. So let's make sure we, we come back to the question about conflicting virtues. Let's not lose that one. You're right. that. Mere outward behavior doesn't tell you about underlying motivation. So you can't read off someone's character just from looking at their behavior. It's often going to be that people could behave well around others just for impression management reasons or fear of punishment reasons. The key insights into character are ones where, or key situations that are revelatory of character are ones in which no one else is around. Or it's a more unique situation, as you said, stresses or puts pressure on the person and you see how they behave. The example you gave is a really great one because it also has analogs in the case of World War II. And so to speak, ordinary Germans, 
and how could they turn into ruthless Nazi butchers? And it nicely dovetails with the experimental literature, which is what I focus on. I don't focus so much on historical anecdotes or situations in the news. I look at carefully controlled studies and probably the most famous study in the history of psychology is the Milgram shock experiments, which I'll go over in a second for those listeners who are not familiar with it. And what that was doing was precisely putting people, ordinary people, in an unusual situation and probing their character and see what would happen. Would their character stand up to the test or not? And it didn't. And so if it's okay just to run through that one briefly, in the 1960s, Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale, had ordinary people, not you know, people who are pre-identified as high in narcissism or pre-identified as high in some virtue, but just, you know, a whole group of quote-unquote ordinary people come in individually into the lab. They would administer a test to someone in the next room. The person in the next room was hooked up to an electric shock machine, or so it seemed, such that every time that person got a wrong answer, the participant was supposed to turn up an electric shock dial. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more for every wrong answer. Uh, there's an authority figure standing behind the participant saying, please continue. We need you to continue if there's any objection raised by the participants. This whole thing was rigged, of course. So listeners who are getting worried that this is like really unethical, well, it probably is, but there were really were no electric shocks, but the participants thought there were. And so it was rigged in such a way that the test taker would start getting more wrong answers, more wrong answers, more wrong answers. So there would be stress, to use your word, on or pressure to turn up the dial more and more and more. And as that happens, there would be more evidence of pain and suffering in the next room ouch, or that hurts. And as it goes on and on, pounding on the wall. I have a heart condition. Stop this. Get me out of here. Screaming, crying to the point where if you kept as a participant turning up the dial more and more and more, all the, you went all the way, you would get to the XXX level, which would result in a silence, in silence, suggesting that you've killed the test taker. And not everyone behaved the same way. There was not uniformity here, but more than 60% of participants went up to the XXX level. And well, wait, so, did you say that you was it you or who was doing this in uh, on avatars, right? Because the IRB would not allow this now, but they allow it with avatars. And I don't get that because that's that's equally distressing. So with the character project, our first product, we funded a bunch of scholars all over the world to do products on character. And one team we funded was in Spain, which wanted to update Milgram, because as you said, you can't do this anymore. The IRBs, would, institutional review boards would never allow you to do this. They wouldn't pass the ethics standards. So they try to get around that by saying, well, no, 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 it's not a real person in the next room. It's a virtual reality simulation, which would be getting the shocks. And so you don't have to worry that you participant, you're not going to actually be hurting anyone. Now, we saw a video of this and yeah, I mean, like we saw a video of participants going through this. And of course, we understood that this was not a real person getting the shocks, but it made us watching a video of this halfway around the world made us uncomfortable. It was disturbing to see a participant turn up the shock dial, even for an avatar. That's right. But since it's an avatar, it met the ethics requirements. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to finish, but, you know, you define all these different kind of facets of honesty, which I, I love the definition, right, that was expansive enough to include promise keeping and so forth. But, you know, here's an example where 
the person who walks out of the room and says, I'm not going to continue with this experiment, in a way, violating a promise, right? And so are they less honest, but more compassionate? Or are they simply more honest? You know, it gets back to this idea of trade-offs. Yeah. And, and what also gives us, links us back to that conflicting virtues idea too. That's an interesting take on that. I've never seen that take before. So here's your way of doing it. And then I'll give a different gloss on it. Your way of doing it is to say, they've made a promise to go through with the experiments. Now they're breaking their promise by walking out, but they're doing it for compassionate reasons. So now we have a conflict of virtues, honesty on the one hand, compassion on the other. And these participants who don't go through with the experiments, their honesty is giving way to their compassion. So they're, they're valuing compassion more. Right. Maybe, I mean, clearly, the, clearly the, the organizers would be justified in not paying them, right? Because they, they failed to do their job. I think so. It's pretty harsh. I mean, but yeah, I think I think they would. Um, I would have thought that they made a promise with a, an understood or implicit caveat that I'm promising to do this so long as certain fundamental moral principles or rights are not going to be broken. You know, if I sign up for an experiment and you tell me as part of this experiment, I want you to torture an animal and you never told me about that. And yeah. I promise to be part of that experiment. Look, I, I'm not doing. I'm not being dishonest when I walk out. Well, I mean, the easier the easier example is the one that everyone refers to, and you, you talk about in the book quite a bit, which is you know you've you've got it. You've got some a Jewish family hiding in your basement, and the Nazis come and ask. I mean, this is. I think if if Kant were alive, this you know he would probably use this example. I think he did use a similar example, right, of of someone with an axe or right. But the way I think about that example is, you know, in legal ethics, we we talk about things like nullification. So if you're on a jury you have your job. And if you're a defense attorney, you have your job. And if you're a prosecutor, you have your job. And if you're a plaintiff, I mean, if you're, if you're a juror and the person is clearly guilty, right? I mean, it's, there's, the evidence is overwhelming, but the consequence would be the death penalty, which is, I think you see as being excessive. And I think most morally upright people would see it as excessive. Then on the one hand, you're justified in just saying the person's innocent, but that's dishonest, right? I mean, that's equivalent to kind of, you know, lying about the Jews in your basement, right? Right, 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 right. So we could dissect the different examples, and then we can also draw the more general point. So Kant had an example like this. He used an axe murder. So an axe murder is going door to door looking for a victim or would-be victim, and you know where that would-be victim is, and you lie to the axe murder to protect the the would-be victim. The updated version of that is the Nazi at the door. You're hiding the, the Jewish family in the basement. The Nazi is doing a routine patrol. You lie to them to protect the Jewish family. In your example, you know this person's guilty, but you lie as to what the appropriate punishment is or their guilt or innocence in order to protect them from getting the death penalty. So yours is maybe an example of, well, I think we could, we can, we can do all three. Honesty on the one hand, compassion on the other hand. So the more general implication of this is that, yes, virtues can come into conflict. Virtues are not seamlessly in harmony with each other, even in their fullest expression. And that's no news to Aristotle or to any virtue ethicist who's worked on this. One reason it's not is that Aristotle had a special virtue, which he called practical wisdom or phronesis in the Greek. And one of the jobs descriptions of that virtue was to adjudicate conflicts between the other virtues. So... I'm not a, the biggest fan of this part of his view, but anyway, the point is that it's long been recognized virtues can come into conflict and then you need some other, something else 
to sort out the conflict. And in these examples, I think it's pretty straightforward. The Nazi example, how you sort it out, you err on the side of compassion. Compassion gets the upper hand. But the upshot is that you do something that's in lying, which is dishonest, but morally obligatory. So you do get interesting, seemingly paradoxical statements like that, that being dishonest is actually morally required. So the act is dishonest, but that doesn't make you a dishonest person, right? That's the difference. Yep, yep. And so this is controversial, but I don't think any one act by itself would ever make someone vicious. But at least not in this, certainly not in this example. The, the mere act of lying to the Nazi at the door is not sufficient to make someone a vicious person. You need a lot more than that. You need like maybe some cross-situational dishonesty, but then maybe even need more. I mean, motivation needs to be dishonest too. And so we, there has to be a bigger, a richer picture. By the way, the chapter on phrenesis, I, I thought was wonderful. I really enjoyed that one. We could, we, could, we could talk all day just about that chapter. But there's another part, which I think shows up in both books, where you contrast these different approaches to the virtues, where there's the kind of stoical approach, where you are kind of either virtuous or you're not, right? Versus one where there's a continuum. And of course, you know, economists, I'm an economist, so I love continuum continua and then I'm a lawyer so I love you know <laughs> some 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 bright lines so I, I always you know love both of these approaches and I think that you know you have sort of a different approach which is that most people are neither nor right <laughs> that in a way there's this middle ground where you know you're neither virtuous nor are you you know not ver vice we need a good word for that like viceful what's the word what's the vicious, opposite of vicious. virtuous Vicious. Vicious. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like if you have sort of an on-off switch where you're either virtuous or non-virtuous, it would lead to people just kind of giving up, right? Saying, look, you know, I, I'm never going to make it, so I might as well just kind of do my thing, right? Whereas at least if there's a matter of degree, then people can every day, they can look at themselves and say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more, more virtuous than I was yesterday. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's a lot there, and, and you very accurately represent my view, which I really appreciate. So one picture is a stoic picture where it's either perfect virtue or nothing. So as a result, no one is virtuous on that picture because no one's perfectly virtuous. And I think that's just, as you said, first of all, not very helpful in understanding people. It's also motivationally discouraging. If I need to meet the standards of perfect virtue to be virtuous and I can't meet them, why should I even bother? So I, I just jettison that framework. The framework I like is to say, and by the way, I think we see that we see that also. It's um, I think I was interviewing another guy who talked about the um, the what the hell effect. If you're never going to be skinny, then you might as well just <laughs> give up on the on the on the diet, right? <laughs> right, so right yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. And so I like to say, virtue comes in degrees. There can be someone who's weakly virtuous, moderately virtuous, fully virtuous. Vice comes in degrees too. So you can be really vicious, moderately vicious, weakly vicious, and then there's a middle space in between them, and that's what I call mixed character where your character has some good sides to it and some bad sides to it. So you're not good enough to count as virtuous to any extent. You're not bad enough to count as vicious to any extent. You're in the middle. And I think this is not totally foreign to us. This Aristotle had a similar, like we keep coming back to Aristotle, but he had a similar picture too. And then there's a the question, okay, this is just taxonomy. This is how I want to think about possible ways people could be. How are most people? And for that, I can't just sit in the armchair and pronounce, oh, most people are this, most people are that. I need to have some data to use. And the data I like to use is the you know, systematic examination of the collective body of research in psychology. 
no one study proves anything. But if you looked at the collective body of research on honesty, if you looked at the collective body of research on, on helping, on harming, et cetera, what kind of picture emerges there? Is it a picture of most people behaving well? Is it a picture of most people behaving badly? Or is it a picture of people behaving well or badly? Sometimes it's a kind of on and off, on and off, on and off in a variety of different situations without a lot of consistency in one case or the other. And that's what is in fact the case. I think most people have patterns of behavior that they're exhibiting in these studies, which do not fit what I would think of as a virtuous person's pattern of behavior, nor vicious person's pattern of behavior. I can give some examples of the studies, but to address your point, that's, that is exactly the picture I have that I'm working with here. Well, if modern psychology sometimes maybe veers into the a realm of being too behavioralist, it seems like folk psychology is often in the opposite place, right? So, you know, the fundamental attribution error where, you know, somebody does something and, and you say, well, that must be a bad person or a good person. And we tend to discount the context, right? We tend to discount the stimuli that they're exposed to, right? And even ourselves, we tend to underestimate the extent to which we're influenced. I think some of the experiments that you talk about in the book where you, I think you do debrief people and they don't have any idea that they were being influenced by these environmental factors that you manipulated. Correct. You were correct. So comment on the, the more general observation. And I, let me give you an example or two of those studies. As a more general observation, you're right. We tend to quickly infer something about other people's character based upon seeing them act one time. We also tend to overinflate our own character and think we're relatively immune to situational factors when we're not. We also kind of boost our character. We think we're pretty good. So the character gap book is the character gap, how good are we? And people tend to rate themselves a four out of five, for example, on their overall character and on particular character traits, which I think is a mistake. So what some of these studies show is that we are remarkably sensitive to factors in our environment, and we may not even realize that. Or at least we would not have predicted we would be so sensitive ahead of time. Um, Milgram is one such illustration. We Many people say, if I was in the Milgram scenario, surely I would never have turned the dial up that far. I would have acted much better. Well, unlikely. Um, but there are m more subtle kinds of influences besides an authority figure standing behind you telling you to turn up a shock dial. So here's an, a study I like to use. It was done in the 1990s in a shopping mall. No one knew they were part of a study. These were just ordinary shoppers going about their business. One group of shoppers was observed passing by a clothing store, and then they were approached individually and asked, can you help me with a very simple helping task? Most of them didn't do it. I think it was less than 20%. Another group of shoppers, and again, they didn't know they were part of a study. They were just going about their business, had passed Mrs. Fields cookies or Cinnabons, and so, you know, you got to conjure up in your mind, okay, good smells and really uh, attractive aromas. Then they were approached to do the same helping task. And in that case, it was over 60%, which helps. So less than 20 versus over 60, same shopping mall, same helping task. What's the only difference? Well, the only relevant difference was the presence or absence of the smell. If you're a virtuous person, that shouldn't matter. Also, if you're a vicious person, that shouldn't matter, by the way. If you're callous or indifferent, you would be indifferent in both cases. If you're compassionate, you would be helpful in both cases. But my mixed picture would have predicted that, well, in one situation, people behaved well, in the other, they didn't. Not on the basis of anything morally important, but on the basis of the presence or the absence of the smell. 
So that's, a, I think, a good illustration of what you were talking about, how we overestimate our immunity to situational environment, to our situation and its situational factors. And we don't realize that something like the smell or other examples, noise level, the number of people in, the, in, in a crowd, these kind of things can significantly influence whether we do the right thing. Is, is consistency a, a, a virtue of its own, right? I mean, you talk about there's moral virtues and kind of non-moral virtues. It seems like if you want to be virtuous, you need to have consistency to some degree. But independent of the directionality, is consistency on its own sort of, you know, somebody who's slightly less virtuous on average, but they're more consistent. I mean, I just think that self-knowledge, right? Self-knowledge, I think you describe self-knowledge as sort of a, it's related to honesty in a way, right? Because you're, you're down dialing the dial for self-deception is sort of going down. So, you know, you think ahead of time, like, how am I going to respond in this situation? How am I going to respond in this situation? And then when you encounter that situation, you kind of remember the fact that you thought about it. So you're, you're aware of who you are and having that sort of, I don't know, decision-making algorithm kind of at the surface all the time is, I think it's one of the things that you kind of recommend, but do you think of that as a virtue in, independent of yeah. the... I, I don't know. I've never actually thought about that question before, to be honest. Uh, yeah, like, let's suppose, let's yeah. suppose I meet one homeless person and I give him, you know, $10 mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I meet another one and I give him $2 mm-hmm. and then versus somebody who gives like $5 consistently. So you're giving, you're giving like less money on average, but you're adhering to a rule that you've maybe thought through and, and decided consciously. Yeah. I'm hesitant. I, I guess, um, I, th- I think this could be carried out in a very flat-footed way that would make it more rigid and legalistic and a way that I would not want to promote. But at the same time, there's like clear examples where you would want to be consistent. I want to consistently be there for my friend when my friend needs me. I want to consistently be faithful to my wife year in and year out. I want to you know, consistently not cheat on my taxes or on a academic work or something like that. But now this sounds like this is just embedded in the particular virtues. This is not getting up what you're asking about because the types of consistency I'm talking about here, this is a consistency embedded in honesty. This is a consistency embedded in loyalty, a consistency embedded in trust, a consistency embedded in friendship. Is there anything distinct from all of those that we would just say, I'm a consistent person, that's my virtue, that's not already captured by the other virtues. Ah, I never thought about that before. I don't, my initial inclination is to say no. I think anything, anything we could say here, the existing virtues already do the job. They already cover the, ter- the terrain. Well, the other thing I was thinking about is towards the end of both books, you talk about kind of how you can become more honest or how you can become more virtuous in general. It seemed like a, a big part of it is about kind of self-nudging, right? Part of it's self-nudging, knowing yourself well enough to know, right, the environmental cues that will influence you and not knowing that you can't necessarily get rid of them, but you can at least kind of shape the environment in which you find yourself. And then also like this idea of developing habits so that you don't have to actually think all the time about every single thing you have sort of a, you put yourself in a framework where you can consistently and repeatedly do the things which are virtuous. And so what I've found is that when you do that, that can sometimes you know, lead to, you're on autopilot to a degree, but it might also be pleasant over time, right? Because, you know, it's less work in a way. If it's autopilot, but it's autopilot that you yourself have selected, 
does that get rid of the kind of moral neutrality of being on autopilot more generally, right? So if, if you're just on autopilot, then there's no real character there. But if you've chosen to become, you know, yeah. autopilot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. That, I feel that's the way to think about it. There's autopilots of the teenager, and then there's autopilot who's just, this is just how they are. And then there's autopilot of the person who's been... A quite a bit of time becoming better, habituating themselves in a certain direction, cultivating a good character to the point where they don't have to think a lot in advance. They can just get in the situation and see what the right thing to do is. And it comes naturally to them. And in particular, they don't have to exhibit internal or they don't have to experience internal conflict and strife. So in an Aristotelian picture, if you're still have to overcome temptation and you have to fight with against yourself to do the right thing, that's a sign that you're not at virtue yet. A virtuous person is going to be one whose behavior flows, I would say automatically or naturally or easily from their underlying psychology, which is harmoniously towards the good. So it's an autopilot in the sense of being oriented towards the good, but one which you're still now responsible for and blameworthy or praiseworthy for because you were involved in cultivating this character in the first place. You made yourself this kind of way. And I think there, here there's interesting analogies with non-moral skills. So take the world-class tennis player who doesn't have to think about the serve anymore. They just go through the automatic motion of the serve and they hit the ace and it just flows naturally. Or the chess master who can see the board and see the moves very immediately. So these kind of skills, which you're not born with, you have to cultivate and develop. It takes lots of practice and lots of setbacks, just like character. You can get yourself to be in this flow state eventually as a, I don't know, say reward or not that's the right word, but a sign that you have reached a certain expertise or excellence in your skill or character. Yeah, I really like that analogy, right? That becoming, it's sort of like a virtue muscle, right? And you have to kind of work out your virtue muscles and get better and better with practice, but it requires work and it requires discipline. You have to practice the piano, you have to practice basketball, so forth. The only thing I would object to is that you kept using these examples of the NFL quarterback. Now, I should mention there's only about there's less than a hundred NFL quarterbacks <laughs> on the planet. You know, it's, it's okay to be a nice, you know, weekend tennis player that, that, that is, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I think that might be uh, what you're intending to just to, you can get better and better as a weekend tennis player. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's actually a mistake on my part to, to use those kind of examples because another big emphasis that I have in cultivating character is on exemplars and role models and how, looking to them can be very helpful in growing our character, but it really is important to choose the right kind of exemplars or role models. And if you choose someone who's so excellent, this goes actually back to the stoic point we, conversation we had a, a little while ago, you should show someone who's so excellent to try and emulate. And then you realize, wow, I'm so distant from that person. It can have the opposite effect of discouraging you to make progress. So don't choose Tom Brady, choose the quarterback of your local college team or something like that, or or whatever. So more general point, relatable and attainable are two features of exemplars that make a big psychological difference. Are they attainable or do I at least think they're attainable? And it, can I relate to them? And in the NFL quarterback case, they're not attainable and I probably can't relate to them either. So all by way of saying you're right to to call me out on that as a corrective. 
Okay, so we know that if we want to be a good piano player, we got to practice, and we know we want to be a good football player, we, we have to practice. And and so if we we want to develop good character, we, we know it's going to take work, right? And very few people have the discipline to practice the piano or anything else. So how, if you think about parents, right, and parents are interested in helping their children to develop character, right? I mean, how does one do this? You don't send them to character camp, right? You don't send them to 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. is your character uh, lesson, you know, right, the, the right, tutor's right. coming over. Right. So how should we be thinking about educating character? And I know that like at the universities, universities, we don't believe that's part of our job, right? To some degree, we police bad behavior, but we don't think that it's our job to teach people character. It's They're supposed to discover it within somehow. Well, I guess there are a couple, a couple different contexts here. One is the parent-child context. And another is the educational context, which can range from kindergarten up to graduate school. Let's take the educational context first. I think there, you, there's a lot of diversity here. So if you compare the, the gigantic public states college to the, it doesn't have to be religious, but private school, which wants to educate the whole person. That's what my school, Wake Forest University, not religious school, but we. one of our biggest mottos is pro humanitate. Our president has for years said, educating the whole person. We have a program for leadership and character. We invested lots of money in proactively trying to cultivate character in the students at the college, the collegiate level. So I think it's going to matter what type of school we're talking about and what they're interested in and what they think is important. So, And I can say more about how that might work at, at the collegiate level. At the parental level, that's a different matter here. It's here we're talking about years and years and years of time together on a daily basis um, where there's opportunities to shape character in a very direct way. Now, let's get into some of the nitty gritty. What could be some things the parents could do? Well, I think the first and foremost, the most important thing is think about their own character because they are role models of to their children of good or bad. Children remarkably emulate and copy the behavior that they see exhibited in their environment, most noticeably with their parents. So it shouldn't start, what do I need to do to get my child to behave better? Let's look into myself. What do I need to do to become a better person? Secondly, there's the idea of just talking about and gaining greater familiarity with the ideas of virtue and character. So mentioning the word honesty, talking about what does that mean? Does that mean I should never tell a lie? Well, maybe not. Maybe there are some situations like not see the door where that's okay. Does it mean most of the time I shouldn't? And why shouldn't I? And what are some of the reasons? And why is that good or bad? So explicit discussion. The third thing I'll mention is nudging or more reminders in the home environment where you're not forcing the child to do anything. You're just reminding them, might think about things in a different way. You might think about how that's, your brother is going to feel if you do that. Try to step out of your own perspective and think about how that's going to make someone else feel empathetically if you do that. Those are kinds of nudges or more reminders that there's other ways to look at the situation that might call your attention to a good way to live. So big, big topics. So those are some at least preliminary thoughts. Well, you know, we, we have ethics courses in a lot of our MBA programs and law schools and occasionally in engineering schools, but there seem to be two approaches, right? So one approach is the, hey, we're going we're gonna to teach you about Kant and, and Rawls and you're going to learn about deontology and utilitarianism and maybe a little virtue ethics and so forth. 
But then there's another approach, and I think this is an approach that you discuss in the book, which is let's talk about biases. Let's talk about behavior. Let's talk about social influence, right? And if you understand better how you're wired psychologically, this will help you. And it reminded me, I had a conversation with uh, Massimo Pugliucci a a while back, and he uses this term like sci-fi, you know, science and philosophy. And it took me back to when I was in grad school, I took a political philosophy course, a seminar, and the claim of the instructor was that, you know, you simply cannot have a philosophy without a psychology, right? You can't have a moral philosophy without a psychology. If you don't understand what humans are and kind of how they how they're built and how they operate. I think the way he said it is you need a theory of human nature to before you can sort of have an ethics. I mean, you're a philosopher who runs experiments. Is this going to be mandatory? I mean, are we going to require from now on, if you want to be uh, an ethical philosopher, you know, you're not going to get a PhD unless you run experiments. <laughs> and then on the flip, you know, I mean, because what you're doing is really social psychology more than philosophy, right? Well, so lots of questions there. Um, there are lots of interesting things I want to talk about. I don't like the approach in educational context of going through the ethical theories as a way to get people to become better. That's not productive. You're right to say I would prefer to spend our time emphasizing some of the psychological impediments and making them, which are, which are often unconscious, or at least people don't pay much attention to them, things like the bystander effect, for example, or the influence of, of our situations and, and environments or our desire to obey authority figures to, to a great of an extent. Pay attention more to those. I want to say my approach is twofold. It's both empirical and philosophical. So it's not one or the other, it's both. And the reason why it's both is that I think psychology can tell us a lot about how we're actually doing, and that philosophy can tell us a lot about what we should be doing or how we should be. But they cannot cross over into the other area. They would be out of their wheelhouse, so to speak. So if our topic or our goal is to think about how to live and what kind of person I should become, and how do I get to become that kind of person, I want to know how are we doing already? What are most people actually like? What's our baseline? What are we starting with? Are we already virtuous? Well, then, hey, we're good. If we're not virtuous, how far do we have to go? And what obstacles do we have to overcome? That's where the psychology comes in. That's The empirical data helps here. But the empirical data can't tell me how I should live and what a virtue is. Now we're getting into the normative. Psychology is not normative. So then philosophy can come along here and fill in those blanks. And then we put them together. So it's it's not either or, it's cooperatively, work, you know, both ends, working together to help us take our actual character and try to reshape it into the character it should be. And so bring the empirical up to the level of the normative. So I think it's cooperative like that. Right. But you got to start with self-knowledge, right? So you got to start by looking at what you're actual character is so you can figure out what, where the gap is. You mentioned religion in both books. And I mean, we're, we're living in an increasingly secular world. And religion has, I think, played a role in many ways to bolster character or help people, provide people with tools that help them to more easily cultivate virtues. Is there an alternative that will be equally effective in, in, in helping? Is that something which necessarily changes the whole project. 
The honest answer is I have no idea. And that's an empirical question. And we have, we're nowhere near being able to answer it. So when I talk about religion, I make some tentative claims along the following lines, acknowledging that religious practices have done a lot of harm over the years. It's not one-sided by any means. Acknowledging that there's a diversity of religions. And so there's not just one religion which does better than the other ones. Acknowledging that you can certainly be non-religious and be a very good person. You can be religious and be a very bad person. But then trying to point out that there are religious practices that you can find in many religions, things like prayer, fasting, tithing, works of charity, and so forth, that are embedded in the religion that practitioners are supposed to participate in routinely. And those practices look like they have a character building and a character enhancing impact on people. And not just looks like it from the armchair, but that there's some empirical evidence correlating religiosity with good outcomes, including increased volunteering, increased donations to charity, less crimes, and so forth. So now to directly answer your question, well, as religion becomes less prominent, at least in, in our society, in other parts of the world, it's actually flourishing in Africa, for example, what's going to be the character impact? And is there anything else to come and fill the void? Well, if the data is of any value, the thought is there might be a negative character impact, but there's it just remains to be seen if there are going to be secular practices that are analogs of prayer, analogs of this, analogs of that, which can come along and do the same work. It seems like there could be. I don't see any reason why there couldn't be. And it's just an empirical question. Will they be robust enough to get to the same place? And well, time will tell. You know, we'll have to wait and see. Last question. And this kind of takes us back to the idea around trade-offs. And economists like to think in terms of substitutes and complements. And if something's a substitute, then it means that it comes along and replaces something else. And if it's a complement, it means that it enhances the other things. And to what extent do you think that the different virtues are complementary. In other words, when you cultivate one, it kind of makes it easier to cultivate the other. I mean, we know in, in, for instance, in music, if you learn to play the piano, it's going to be easier to learn the guitar. You know, if you learn French, it's going to be easy to learn Italian. If you learn football, it's going to be easier to learn baseball and so forth. Does becoming more honest, is that likely to make you more, more generous? I mean, would we even be able to empirically test that hypothesis through some kind of interventions? Or would we necessarily have all these endogeneities that we would not be able to kind of get rid of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that last part, I'll have to come back to in a minute. I think here's, let me start very abstract. Aristotle held a doctrine called the doctrine of the unity of the virtues. And according to that doctrine, if you, in order to have one virtue, you have to have all the virtues that they're a package. So the question doesn't even make sense because if you get there in one case, you've gotten there in all cases. But Aristotle was wrong about that. No one today that I know of holds yeah, that no, you can You can have an honest slave owner, for instance, right? Yeah, right, right. In, right. in a way, or... Yeah. Or, a, uh, or an honest mafia member. So what seems to be more plausible is that some virtues cluster together. So integrity, honesty, authenticity, trust those naturally cluster together, but they may not cluster at the same time with generosity. They might be a, a part of another cluster. And so I think that's plausible. If you get to one of these virtues, it's, it's likely you're going to be near or maybe have already gotten to the ones, other ones in the cluster with that virtue. 
how could you empirically test all this? Well, I mean, if you had a good measure of one of the virtues and a good measure of the other virtues, you could, you know, you could see whenever I find people like this, do they also tend to be like this? So are people high on honesty also going to be high on generosity? As long as we have our good measures of both of those traits, and we have the same people, we can administer the surveys or the behavioral tests, whatever they are, and see if they tend to be correlated with each other. Now, interventions, so that's, uh, put it that way, you know, if I have some inter robust interventions to get someone to be more honest, then I would also need to have some kind of test to see subsequently, are they also more generous? That's That could be done, but that's expensive and time-consuming and not likely to be done very often in psychology labs. So. Yeah, all of the experiments you mentioned, the, they're not really longitudinal in the sense that they don't really go past a couple weeks, right? I mean, when we're looking at healthcare, we look at Farmington study, right? We, we look at people over a 20, 30, 40-year period. I don't think that we've done that. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to go back and look at the people who participated in the Milgram experiment <laughs> 30 years later? Fascinating. Um, fascinating. I, think they, I, think they, I think they did do that with the marshmallow uh, test, right? They yeah, did kind of... That's right. They have tracked the marshmallow participants and they did find interesting relationships. And it seemed like it, how you perform the marshmallow test predicted, predicted how you would do even decades later. That is very much the outlier, though. Almost no studies are like this in psychology. And I think, sadly, in my field you know, of character, those longitudinal studies are the precisely the ones you want to have. And we don't have right. many of them. So sadly. When plus in the marshmallow test, there was no intervention. It was just a right. You know, it's just diagnostic, right? That's right. So, that's right. well, the, hey, that's your next grant proposal. <laughs> you do, do a forty-year, uh, forty years worth of study, right? I got, I got plenty. Of, I got plenty to do already. <laughs> you know, well, good, well, one of the listeners, let one of the listeners do it. <laughs> right. Well, Christian, thanks so much. Uh, the book, The Character Gap, check it out. By the way, the picture that you have here, it reminded me almost immediately. You know, when I remember reading um, Solzhenitsyn back in in college. And, and, you know, it was like a thousand pages, but the one thing that I remembered was, you know, he talked about how good and evil is, it's a line that slices down between every single human. And, and I remember reading that and I was just struck because he, he's describing this evil height of kind of 20th century evil. And, and he, for him to make that claim was, and I think the whole book is really a thousand page kind of thesis around that, that final claim. So there we got Gandhi and we've got Hitler on here. And the other, the other book is called uh, Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. Thanks so much, Christian. It's great to be with you. This great conversation questions. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Dot com.